So I was 29 and I just thought, what am I doing with my life? And I knew I wanted to do something more meaningful with my life. And I went, I'm going in the wrong direction. I was looking for my mission. Uh, and part of the mission, I knew that there was something larger that life was about. And I didn't, wasn't exactly sure what that was. Welcome to the Meg Robinson Show, exploring the stories that make us who we are. I'm Meg Robinson, your host and composer of the music you hear in this podcast. Nancy Rivard had an epiphany when she was 29 years old. It changed her life and the lives of thousands of other people around the world. This is her story, Angel in Flight. I graduated from Southern Methodist University um, with a master's degree in public administration. And I actually went over to American asking for a job in airline administration. And they said, oh no, you have to start at the bottom. And I went, oh, I'm, no, I'm overqualified. But they said, no, no, you'll, you'll see. And so I ended up taking a job as a flight attendant. And what year was this? 1976. And I began, and shortly after, I did a commercial for American, and then I became a supervisor. I taught emergency procedure training, and, and I was on my way up the corporate ladder with American Airlines. This is 1979, 1980, when my dad died suddenly. He was only 54, and it was Christmas Eve, and it was so profoundly impactful for me because I was taken by surprise. And I, it just prompted me to say, what am I doing with my life? And how old were you at the time? 29. Daddy's death was a wake-up call for me to move toward my soul. And I actually uh, went back to being a flight attendant, uh, to initially go back to school and do doctoral research in consciousness and the nature of reality. And what prompted that? Well, I, I thought, what is life about? The daddy could die so quickly. I was looking for the meaning of life, actually. I soon realized that academia is as big a trap as the corporate world. And I thought, this isn't it either. And I began to use my time off as a flight attendant to travel. Initially, I went to live with the Hopi Indians. I, I spent time with the spiritual elder of the Hopi, Grandfather David. Powerful experiences there. And then ended up traveling all over the world, documenting miraculous phenomena bringing myself to as many personal epiphanies as possible. And so that journey actually lasted seven years. And I consistently wanted to bring myself outside of my ordinary way of looking at life. For seven years, I consistently uh, traveled to observe 
quote, miraculous phenomena. I also attended international conferences all over the world, which I found were better than any graduate school. That's where I met Mr. Gorbachev years ago. And you were hoping to achieve what, do you think, during this period? I was looking for my mission. Uh, and part of the mission, I knew that there was something larger that life was about. And I didn't, wasn't exactly sure what that was. By attending the international conferences, I began to see that there's a larger context of, cre of creating a better world based on an understanding of our interconnectedness as all humanity. And as not only humanity, but the earth. So the earth and the environment. And so I began to see that this sense of oneness was something more people needed. Like people are warring uh, because they don't understand that we're all connected, we're all one. People are just concerned about their family, their country. But really one country or one family affects another. So you went back to being a flight attendant. So what's so great about going back to flying was I realized that I had lots of free time and the ability to travel internationally and anywhere I wanted. And I didn't have to take work home with me. When I was working in a management position, I still had worries and considerations. But when I walked off an airplane, I didn't have anything else to do. I see. So I could devote myself to a deep spiritual search for the meaning of life. And what I ultimately realized is that the meaning of life is love. And ultimately, each of us asks ourselves the essential question, how can I serve? And at the end of the seven years, American had opened a base in Hawaii. And I, I thought, I'm going to take the proffer. And I basically gave away most of my possessions. Uh, most of the flight attendants uh, lived in Honolulu because there was a base in Honolulu. But I got myself a little tiny house on the North Shore of Hawaii uh, with just a Bunsen burner for a stove and two chairs and a small table and a bed and nothing but a few inspirational books did I own except for my flight attendant uniform and a bathing suit. So I had the time to run on the beach every day to deeply ask God, how can I make a difference? And that's when the idea came to me that one way to, I knew that the consciousness of humanity needed to be lifted um, to understand that we're one being. But nobody really gets that when you talk to them intellectually. They get it two ways, by parable, stories, and they get it by experience. And I saw that no one was articulating a larger vision for the travel industry. And that maybe flight attendants, like myself, could utilize the extra space in the overhead bins, the extra seats on the airplane, to directly help children. Because on the spiritual search around the world, I'd gone to many developing countries, and I noticed that they had a need for basic supplies like school supplies, medicine, water, a blanket to keep them warm at night, simple things. 
But I realized that if I could give people the opportunity to bring love into action, two things would happen. Both the children would receive the, the physical things they needed, but that the individual would experience alignment with the spiritual part of themselves. And that's the only thing I knew from experience that would bring joy. And once people taste that joy, you want to keep experiencing it. From the things that I've read um, about you, you started out just doing this on your own initially. Is that Yes, right? I made it. Uh, I, I got the idea in Hawaii, wrote to American about it, and um, they weren't in the least bit interested. Uh, I what tried, were you proposing to I them? was proposing to American to become a sponsor for the United Nations Earth Summit in 1992 which I was volunteering at. And we ended up chairing with my group one of the largest NGO events at the Earth Summit. Not only were non-governmental organizations there, but spiritual leaders, political leaders, every major president of the world was there, business leaders, indigenous leaders. And this was one of the profound experiences of my life because I noticed that when we all get together that are similarly motivated to build a better world, that more things happen more quickly, synchronicities increase. So after the Earth Summit, I thought all this was happening in New York City. So again, because I had a flight attendant job, I could live anywhere. So I put in a transfer to move to New York City from Hawaii, big change. I moved to New York and I spent every single day off at the United Nations volunteering, learning as much as I could. And that's where Gorbachev, who I'd met in my spiritual search days, invited me to bring my airline ambassadors, it was just a name then, to his new conference in Kyoto, Japan. Again, I wrote to all the airlines, all the airlines. I talked to the flight attendants. I said, don't you want to join me at this amazing conference with the Prime Minister Kaifu with, in those days, Time and Newsweek were still operating with editors of Time and Newsweek. They looked at me like I was from Mars. Really? And they rolled their eyes and kept talking about shopping. Oh. I didn't hear anything back from any of the airlines. Including American, right? Including American. Mm -hmm. So I went to my little house on 57th and Lex, and I'm meditating, and I say, Dear God, nobody's interested in any of my ideas. How am I supposed to make a difference in the largest industry in the world, the travel industry? And this little voice said to me, Stop talking about it and start doing it. And I made a decision right then and there to take one action every month to directly help a child, to directly help someone. And so I said, okay, Mr. Gorbachev, I'll come. I was the only airline ambassador. That was 1993. There was no one else from the airline industry? No. So I just was volunteering. It was an incredible conference. And the following month, we, uh, we brought, I got two flight attendants to join me and we brought hotel amenities from our layover hotels to uh, Bosnian women who had seen their husbands 
murdered and this horrible war was on in Bosnia. So we brought out these hotel amenities that we had put in little plastic bags with strings around them, ribbons, and we gave them to the refugee women. There were three of us. And they were received like gold. The women were so touched that we had taken the time and interest in them. And we realized that these presents are like nothing. But it was so profoundly inspiring for us to help these women. Then um, the next month, I volunteered to escort a child uh, back to Columbia from uh, New Jersey where she had received heart donated heart surgery and the flight attendants on my flight said what are you doing i said well i have this idea that as flight attendants we can use our travel privileges to help children directly and we're escorting this girl back from surgery they said put me on your list so by 1995 i had 500 people on my list i was still taking one action every month doing something real to help somebody and um, we ended up starting a nonprofit organization and at that point. And that's Airline Ambassadors. That's Airline Ambassadors. I moved down to Washington when Clinton got inaugurated, and I made good friends with Congressman Tom Lantos and his wife, Annette, who was the founder of the uh, uh, Human Rights Caucus, later became the head of the Foreign Relations Committee. He had escaped uh, Hungary under Hitler. And so they were very supportive of this work, and we began to accomplish amazing things. When we began in 1997, we had two programs. We escort children in need of medical care not available in their home countries. We use our airline privileges to do that, and we've escorted 3,000 children. It's unbelievable. And then we also did humanitarian missions every month where we hand-delivered aid to children in need in some country to provide something for them. And it, it did, we've accomplished amazing things. Later we were given airplanes. Um, Americans started giving me two airplanes a year uh, back in 1999, filling those airplanes with aid. Uh, and then later JetBlue did. Um, we had lots of, we moved 47 airplanes worth of aid so far. Uh, that all ended a lot after 2011, um, the Haiti earthquake, so the airlines aren't doing that anymore. It cost them too much money. It's, it started to taper off with American after 9-11, where they didn't have aircraft to donate anymore. So we've become more, we, have, we raise money, we still do humanitarian missions every month, and we uh, hand deliver the aid and the money that we've raised trying to meet a specific need for children. That ultimately led to our third program. We were in Cambodia, a small team of us uh, helping children uh, in Angkor Wat in this particular area, this gorgeous area. And what year is this? 2009. Mm -hmm. And we saw, we came upon a little girl that was drawing clothes on her own body with a red marking pen. She was stark naked, about two. Mm. And um, she had no hair. She had no name. The peep, she was 
like an animal groveling underneath a house that are built on stilts. And the woman upstairs in the house, we said, who is this little girl? They said, oh, she's been left here. Her mother works in the karaoke bars. She's been trafficked, we later learned. And the, the, the traffic, mother, the mother, was mother trafficked. was trafficked, mm-hmm. and the little girl will be picked up by a trafficker pretty soon because we can't feed her or take care of her. Mm. Well, all we had was a balloon. We gave her a balloon, and we began to walk away. And the little thing raised her hand, and we thought, "How can we leave her? We can't just abandon her here. No one's going to look out for her." So we were able to get her to a doctor. Luckily, malnutrition had not set in so much that there was brain damage yet, but we got her into a safe house. We gave her a name. We called her Somnang, which means lucky in Khmer. And we learned about the dark reality of human trafficking. And on that trip, I thought, that's it. We can get involved. Yes. And how did that come about that you, how did that, take shape the the effort so the next uh we we had read done a little bit of reading by then that it was happening on flights that oftentimes trafficking victims are moved so our following month remember we have humanitarian missions every month we were in the dominican republic with a team of 12 people and we brought um container load of aid to children in several different orphanages and schools. But on that trip, we discussed human trafficking and we promised one another to be alert on our flights out. Incredibly, we correctly, that team correctly identified trafficking on four different airlines. Two of them were directly out of the Dominican Republic and that first tip led to the bust of a pornography ring saving 86 children. And how long did that, over what period of time did that take place, the um, finding of this ring and um, your initial efforts? It doesn't sound like very long. No, so in 2009, I'll give you that particular story. There we were in Dominican Republic, and different numbers of members of the team identified different cases. But there were six people going from Dominican Republic back to New York. So Sridhar, one of our team, noticed a young boy and a young girl the young, traveling with an American couple, Dominican kids, and the girl was crying. So he bent down to talk to the girl, and he said, Honey, why are you crying? And the man stepped in and talked for her, and he said, Well, she's just crying because she doesn't want to leave her, her friends. And, and he said, Well, where are you going? And the man said, We're going to New York. Oh, that'll be a nice vacation. And the man said, no, it's permanent. We live in Manhattan and we're going to, the kids are moving there. And um, so that's all that he said. And and then Sridhar came back to our group and said, that looks a little strange. The woman was up organizing the tickets. We watched them and a customs agent knew them and high-fived them and walked, said, hey, these are the kids. Yeah. They walked together through the the customs agent and the man handed off the kids to the woman and the flight we were all watching the six people of our team were watching got in line right behind them and said to the woman now the man's not there anymore 
hey, uh, where are you going? And the woman said, Boston. So a different story. A different story. Now, yeah. this is one of the indicators of trafficking. So we got on. And I'm sorry, what, what's one of the indicators? Uh, changing the story of... of inconsistent what? stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the flight we told the flight attendants the flight attendants said we said something might be wrong with that woman with those two children the girl's still crying and the flight attendant went up and she said yes i noticed bruises on her arm i don't know what's going on what's i we don't know what to do if it is trafficking and we said we know you have the pilots radio ahead to new york we did when the team got off they got in line behind these kids and they went through customs and the agent said yes we got your tip from the airplane but we had to let them go because it appears this is an inside job what does that mean it was involving the customs agent they had the correct paperwork they couldn't they couldn't arrest them i see they had the correct paperwork but they said we're going to send a uh undercover agent to follow them in boston that's where the pornography ring was discovered, probably a day later. We don't have all the details on that. Wow. We just know that it involved 86 children. Oh. So we had many, many, four uh, cases out of that one, uh, the, just that small group of people. And we thought if all of if the 12 of us can identify four trafficking incidents, then what if we educated the flight attendants? Well, we American was not interested. So I went to Congressman Chris Smith, the author of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, the first legislation in the United States, and asked for his help to get the word to airlines. So in 2010, we did two uh, congressional briefings, one to uh, airlines and one to embassies. Not much action was taken, truth be known. They did put a small bulletin in American Airlines um, information, but not, it wasn't taught in emergency procedure training. And we thought something has to be done. We developed the first industry-specific training on human trafficking awareness, which we've now implemented. It's going to be the 75th training in Iceland next week. So, and it's done through uh, at airports, essentially. Mainly we do it at airports. Uh-huh. We do it... Uh, we didn't know what to do because the airlines were not following through. So we worked closely with Customs Border Protection, Homeland Security, and the Department of Transportation to develop the first training for industry personnel on this. Later, this was 2011, we started providing trainings. Our first training, by the way, was before the Super Bowl in Dallas, standing room only. I booked the room as a flight attendant because they didn't know what I wanted the room for. As standing room only, and um, it was eight hours long. But uh, later we realized it's easier to get a room just for an hour. So we book uh, a training for usually 60 minutes to 90 minutes, and we found we can condense the information. And we provided training to over 7,000 frontline personnel. So these were personnel connected with the Super Bowl? No, airlines. It was in the airport. It was in the airport of where... It was flight attendants, pilots, agents, um, TSA, uh, Customs Border Protection, law enforcement. And why at the Super Bowl? 
what was the connection there with ah because any place there's a lot of money uh, a lot of uh, people coming there's an increase in the demand for commercial sex and it's known that traffickers will bring victims girls generally and boys to these locations where they know there's going to be a lot of men and money. It can be at any, it doesn't have to be a sporting event. It can be any major event or conference. And but it definitely does increase before the Super Bowl. And then what was the yield from that effort to alert people? We don't know. We know that it, this year in Minneapolis, 591 people were arrested. Uh, 591 people were yes, arrested? Yes, Out of this last year's 2018 Super Bowl. I don't remember what happened in um, in Dallas way but back that's in a, 2001. It strikes me as a huge number of people. But that's not all in the airport. Okay. It's not all in the airport. But it was all, was it all Around related? Around the Super Bowl. All related to human trafficking? Yes. Oh, yes. It was all human trafficking. Just, because victims are brought to these locations because they can sell them. Sometimes they sell them in a cab. The, the, the cab drivers are involved. We started providing training for Uber and, and taxi drivers also, and hotels. Of course, the hotels need training. Yes. So anything in the hospitality industry, traffickers see you as a commodity. They'll use you for labor or sex, either way. Any way they can use you. And if they, if they finish with that, they'll take your organs. So the organ trafficking, there's so much of a market for organs. People will pay huge amounts of money. There's a need for organs, and so there, it creates demand. And on that trip, I thought, that's it. We can get involved. How pervasive is human trafficking? If you could just give a little bit of a sense of that. It's hard to know. Um, the latest numbers that have come out from Walk Free Foundation, IOM, and um, the International Labor Organization estimate 40.3 million people in the world today are victims of human trafficking. That includes labor, sex, sexual, uh, sex, um, debt bondage, forced child marriage, and other forms of criminality. It's almost incomprehensible. It's unbelievable. That it would be that big. It's unbelievable. And then you hear about these, I was at Interpol a couple years ago, and they gave a report of young men in Thailand and in Cambodia and these areas wanted to make a living, of course, and they get hired by these fishing boats. Well, they think they're going to make a lot of money. They go out to the fishing boat and they never come back. So what happens is food is brought out to the boat. When the kids get sick, they're thrown overboard. They're outside of any jurisdiction or any waters. And then as soon as they finish their worth, they throw them over. You mean they're, they're used as indentured That's uh, right. labor? That's right. It's labor trafficking. Labor is the largest form of trafficking today. I'll give you one quick example. One of my friends, Finus Lupenga, was a young girl in, where'd she come from? Was it Malawi? She came from Malawi, and she um, was hired by the ambassador of Malawi to the United States to work as a, uh, 
uh, maid in her home, a domestic servant, and she signed a contract for $900 a month to get paid. And to her, it sounds like a lot of money. So she's so excited. She gets a plane ticket. She comes over to the United States, Mm -hmm. and this lady is the ambassador. She didn't know that she wouldn't be paid for the first several months. She was had to sleep in the basement with scraps of food 12 hours a day. Many years later, uh, Finess was able to escape this situation and get to somebody. The, a law firm took her, took her on, Jones law, law Firm took her on. She won a $1.1 million lawsuit against the ambassador who skipped the country, never paid, and is now ambassador to Zimbabwe. No. Unbelievable. What can we do yes. to become more aware and and try to take action when we see that there's a problem? Yes. The first the first issue is to become aware and to begin to notice the environment you're in, because this is happening all over the world in schools, in malls, and in airports, all over. And if you notice, um, let's take the airport context. If you notice someone that's frightened, ashamed, or nervous, if they seem to be under control of someone else, if that person speaks for them, if they have wounds or bruises, if they have inconsistent stories, if they don't have control of their travel documents. These are all indicators of human trafficking. But how would I, let's say I saw someone who looked um, nervous or you know uncomfortable or whatever, as a strange person, I wouldn't go up to them and right. say, you know, are you okay or are you, so how do you, ferret that out when you're just an observer from the outside the best thing that you can do is report anything that you're uncomfortable with to have the the compassion to be able to do that and we give out a the national human trafficking hotline number which is 888-373-7888 or you can text be free just to Send information, or if you're in an airport setting, go to the agent, the flight attendant, the pilot, anyone in an authority. Any kind of uh, uh, person in authority will ultimately know what to do to get law enforcement to make a more complete assessment. We're still working to educate all the people within the airlines. There are problems with that still. Uh, But so you would go directly to anyone in law enforcement, and I would back up call the National Human Trafficking Hotline, 888-373-7888. Our work ended up affecting legislation. So in 2016, the FAA passed the uh, FAA reauthorization that required training for flight attendants. We're expanding that now more to pilots and agents also. And this year, in in May, ICAO, or the International Civil uh, Aviation Authority, came out with guidelines for flight crew. And then IATA, which is the International Association of Transport Aviation, which is the international uh, coordination of CEOs of airlines, 
also came out with the Eyes Wide Open campaign. So we've got a lot of international and national momentum on this. We uh, did a formal FOIA requesting information from the government, and they won't tell us at the airports we've trained how much trafficking has increased. That's Freedom of Information Act. Freedom of Information Act, Mm -hmm, right. mm -hmm. For, For someone, I think, to get to the point of submitting a tip, yes. more than likely there's a real problem there. Exactly. And if there's a real problem there and it's going through the right channels, you know that they're probably going to be responsive. Exactly. Like one girl, Regina, was a flight attendant out of uh, Miami, and she noticed a girl um, on her flight nine years old with an older man. And she said something just didn't feel right in her gut. So. The girl was sitting in coach and she brought her back a piece of cheesecake from first class and the man wouldn't let her have it. Again, he tried to control her. And later she said, I'm gonna try to talk to that girl when she goes to the bathroom. And she tried to get up to the bathroom and the man uh, tried to go in with her. And she said, sir, you can't go in the bathroom with her. And he stuck his foot in the door and he said, she's mine and I'll do what I want and she could see that little girl just shaking and so she turned it into the pilots who radioed ahead to Costa Rica they were on the way to Costa Rica and the Costa Rican authorities came up to her later and said your report saved that little girl from a life of sexual slavery If people wanted to find out more about human trafficking, what's the best resource for them? Certainly to go to Airline Ambassadors website or the National Human Trafficking Hotline website. Polaris is an excellent source of information. The Global Slavery Index is another one. I'm just astounded by the extent of the problem. Yes. I think most people are do, don't appreciate how pervasive a problem it is. And I, I hope, too, that by w- raising the awareness by the work that you're doing and just by people knowing that the problem exists and that they have an opportunity to intervene and do something about it, that they will. I hope so, too, because it's happening all around us in malls, Kids in school need to be educated on this. Medical professionals need to be educated on this. We all need to be aware, and then we need to be able to be willing to do our part to report it if we see something unusual. You're to be commended for this incredible job you're doing. Thank you, Meg. And just remember that it's your action that can save a life. Well, you're living proof of that. That's for sure. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great being here. Isn't it amazing how one person can change the lives of so many others? Visit the Airline Ambassadors website at www.airlineamb.org. I would love to hear from you. Send me an email if you have ideas, thoughts, or feedback. That's hello at themegrobinsonshow.com. Tune in next time for more of the stories that make us who we are. I'm Meg Robinson. Mm-hmm.